Our reading this evening can be found on page 752, and it's Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17, to chapter 66, verse 4. That's 752 in the Church Bibles. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And then verse 1 of the next chapter. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man. And whoever offers a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck, whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents big pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and their souls delight in their abominations. So I will also will choose harsh treatment for them, and will bring upon them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Now, cricket is a game which the British, not being very spiritual people, had to invent in order to have some concept of eternity. Uh, of course, if, uh, if you're good at cricket, or like it, and have got the time to watch it, you will not agree with a certain Lord Mancroft who said it. 
But if, like me, you have memories, fortunately they didn't last very long, of spending lovely sunny Saturday afternoons or weekday afternoons standing on the boundary and occasionally getting a ball coming in your direction, and then spending the other half of the afternoon sitting in a deck chair, waiting to go and bat at number 10 or 11, only to be out within a, uh, an over, I think they were called, you will have a great deal of sympathy with Lord Mancroft because you could have thought of hundreds of better things to do with your sunny summer afternoon. Ideas, though, of eternity abound with false misunderstandings. We need to know what's coming. He may have been a great philosopher in his day, but Thomas Hobbes was very short-sighted. In fact, he was a fool at the end of his life to say, I'm about to take my last voyage, a great leap in the dark. If you know you're going on a journey, you need to know where the destination is, don't you? So what will happen? Not when we die, that's the intermediate state. But uh, what will happen at the end of time? Well, let's turn to this passage today that's uh, there, Isaiah 65, page 752, which verse 17 of uh, chapter 65 opens up with, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. That's the focus of history. That's what everything is looking towards. It is the great climax at the end of time. Now we've seen in Isaiah's writing that he has three great figures in mind in world history. The first is the messianic king who will one day rule not only Israel but the entire world. He will rule with perfect justice and in perfect peace. He is a figure who is both truly human, a descendant of uh, King David, but also truly divine. However, he has two problems. First is that his people, even those who might respond to his rightful rule, are in the wrong with him. He must punish them. But if he were to do so, he'd have no subjects to rule. All would be condemned. And secondly, among his people, there are some who no matter what he does for them to demonstrate his existence and his love, still refuse to recognise his authority and do what they can to resist his purposes. So what does he do? Well, there are two other figures, as I said, in... God's great plan of history, who provide the answers to these two problems. To the problem of rebellious people facing judgment, there is the suffering servant. He again is both human and divine who takes the punishment instead of the people. Justice and peace meet. Wrong is punished and the wrongdoer is able to be reconciled to God. But even with the, the work of the servant, who we now realise was, of course, Jesus, there still remains the problem of those who continue to rebel against God and his rightful rule. They may indulge in passive resistance, 
or they may actively try and frustrate and oppose the plans and purposes of God. And how God deals with them is by the third figure, the anointed conqueror, again divine and human, who will appear at the end of time and usher in this new heaven and a new earth, where the reconciled will live and the alienated will be excluded. So let's take a look at what Isaiah reveals is being uh, in store for us. You have to remember that Isaiah lived about, well, he was active prophesying and speaking on God's behalf between about 700 BC and about 745 BC, although he lived, of course, before he could speak and he lived after we have his last kind of record. But in this particular part of his book, he is uh, inspired by God to see what is going to happen um, well over um, 150 years in the future. Because um, in six, about, about the 680s, they were taken off into exile to Babylon, and they didn't return, uh, sorry, no, that's not right, the 580s, and they returned in about the 540s from exile. So he is, you know, this part of Isaiah is thinking very much in the future. So the, he's talking, really. He's writing this in preparation for the exiles to read years later. And um, they will be coming out of exile and returning to the promised land. And there's going to be a new life under a new king. And some of what is said at the end of that chapter of Isaiah could be said in reference to that event. For example, the proper sacrifices at the start of chapter 66. The Jews of Isaiah's day and before had a long reputation of shortchanging God and fobbing him off with all sorts of stuff. You know, God does not like pigs in their sacrificial system. So fobbing him off with pig's blood is a big no-no. And there are various other ways in which that list, they're shortchanging him. And uh, so um, it's natural for him to remind these exiles, look, you know, you've been punished once. You know, don't fob God off again. Don't repeat your mistake. However, most of what Isaiah writes about is far too grand, even for the return from exile. It's actually too grand even for the first coming of Christ 2,000 years ago. The vision here is only properly understood and fulfilled when Christ will come again at the end of time and create the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. Now what's it going to be like? Well, this passage tells us. And there's half a dozen features that are listed here. Let's have a look at these characteristics of the new creation, which we get a sort of sample, a taste of in this life when we uh, entrust our life to Christ and get a taste of his character in ourselves. So it will be joy. It will be joy for us and it will be joy for God. For us, there will be no memory of the bad bits. The former things, he says, will not be remembered nor will memories be suddenly aroused. Former things will not come to mind. The past handicaps so many of us. 
even though sins are forgiven and forgotten by God, the consequences can still linger and damage. But there will be no more of that in the new creation. And I think here we gain an insight into how we will cope with the decisions of others who don't want to have anything to do with God in this life and so will be granted their wish and will be excluded from him forever. Difficult as it may seem, we probably won't remember them or else their memory would ruin our experience of heaven and God's will would never triumph. C.S. Lewis, as always, is quite perceptive in this. In his particular way of writing, he's writing an exchange of correspondence with someone who I think was called Malcolm. It's sort of entitled, Can You Be Happy When Some Reject God? It's a correspondence. Malcolm speaks first. What some people say on earth is that the final loss of one's soul gives the lie to all the joy of those who are saved. Lewis says, you see, it does not. Malcolm, I feel in a way that it ought to. Lewis, that sounds very merciful, but see what lurks behind it. Malcolm, what? Lewis, the demand of the loveless and the self-imprisoned that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe that till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else shall taste joy, that theirs should be the final power, that hell should be able to veto heaven. Malcolm, I don't know what I want, sir. Lewis, son, son, it must be one way or the other. Either the day must come when joy prevails and all the makers of misery are no longer able to infect it, or else forever and ever the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness they reject for themselves. I know it has a grand sound to say you'll accept no salvation which leaves even one creature in the dark outside. But watch that sophistry, or you'll make a dog in a manger the tyrant of the universe. Well, furthermore, there'll be uh, no more sound of weeping, no more sound of crying. And the word for weeping reflects felt pain. The word for crying, inflicted pain. They will be no more. The cause of such pain will be no more because of what God does. And what he does gives him delight, for I will create Jerusalem and take delight in my people. Jerusalem was his special place on earth where his presence was. Now when God created the heavens and the earth in the first place, the first time in Genesis, we read that he says, and it was very good. That sounds a bit cool compared to his pleasure that he gained from the recreation. Maybe it's because he's been through more to create it. 
He has seen the heartbreak of his creation ruined, of his people making a mess of their relationships and doing untold harm to each other and to their descendants. And of course he has gone through the pain of separation between himself and his son, the servant, who went through the pain and agony of the cross in order to achieve access to this recreation for human beings to be with God as he always intended forever. Having gone through so much more for this second creation than the first, it's perhaps not surprising that even God is more moved. It's rather like a couple who lose their first baby and have to take extra special care during the second pregnancy, wishing and waiting for all to be okay. And then it is. Joy then. That's the first feature of the new world. The second, verse 20, is life. When you're talking about the creation to come, you can only talk about it by means of analogy by using the things with which we are familiar in our world and then magnifying them to the nth degree. Death is one of those things which really spoils this world. It spoils it because it separates us from those we love. Perhaps the death of a young child is the greatest loss. It is painful and I pray that no one would ever have to lose a child. But there'll be no more death in the new creation. Isaiah 25 is quite clear about that. But here, Isaiah's just saying, by way of analogy, that premature death will be at an end. Dying at 100 will be considered to be too young. And similarly, although there will be no sinners in the new world, if there were, the penalty of sin would still be uh, capable of being forgiven, even if the sin is found out a hundred years or so later. There will only be life in the new world. There will be security in the new world. The people of Isaiah's day knew the experience of living for the short term. They would build houses only to have them being taken over by invaders. They would plant crops and vineyards only to have the produce stolen by invaders or thieves. Not being sure enough of peace and prosperity was a great disincentive for them to cultivate the land. It takes years to create a vineyard, for example. You have to terrace the land. That means kind of building little walls and then making the earth behind them, and it's on that earth that you grow your vines, you plant them, and then you have to train them so that uh, when they grow up, they aren't all over the ground, they actually grow up and it's much easier for you to pick the grapes. And then when the fruit does come, you've then got the whole kind of fermentation period 
It takes a few years before you can ever get to drink any of the, the, the wine that you started when you started to do the terracing. Well, there's no more of that short-term insecurity. It's all long-term. It is forever. I don't know if you've ever been to Wellington Country Park. It's a nice day out with the kids, if you've not been. Near the entrance, there is a section through an old oak tree. You can see hundreds of rings, the growth rings of the trees. And each one is uh, dated by some correspondence to some historical event. I can remember there's the American War of Independence, you know, near to the centre of the tree. And then as you move out, the French Revolution, then the Battle of Trafalgar. And since it's Wellington Country Park, the Battle of Waterloo. A reminder of the long-term nature of forestry, which is an ideal illustration here for the new world. As the days of a tree, so will the days of my people be. Then there's togetherness, verse 23. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Now one of the things you're not supposed to do if you are um, a vicar is make any reference to your children in a sermon. And I have actually kept that since before they would, you know, since, well, but I'm just about to break it. <laughs> and the only one of my children here is the one I'm going to refer to. I was talking to Daniel when uh, he was about four. And it was one of those rather precious chats that dads have with sons. Daniel was born just a few months after my father died. And Daniel has one of my father's names. And he's also both left-handed and gentle, although he plays the guitar with his right hand. Uh, we were talking about where Grandad was now in heaven and that Jesus will one day bring him back. Now, Daniel had got all this sussed, and he was just checking up that I was going to go to heaven to be with Jesus until Jesus brings me back. So I thought, I'd better check out you too. So I said, Daniel, do you want to be with Grandad and Daddy and Jesus when you die? Yes, he says. Do you want to come back and be with us all forever? Yes, he said. So we talked some more and had a little prayer and he went to sleep. And that's what it's all about, isn't it, really? No more having kids and there's some war that comes along and destroys a whole generation. No, there is a reuniting of the generations forever. My kids, my dad, my wife, with Jesus, with me forever. That is the prospect that we all look forward to. And then oneness. Oneness with God, oneness with creation. Oneness with God, verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. 
there will be such an identity of wills, we'll be so on the same wavelength, like the golden wedding couple, who likewise kind of know what the other is about to say and say it first. They'll know each other so well. God knows our thoughts and we know some of his, presumably. Because he's certainly watching over and caring for us, he will anticipate our needs immediately we realise them. And then there's a oneness of creation. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So those old enemies, the wolf and the lamb, no more fear between them, harmony. Remember this is an analogy, this isn't an argument for vegetarianism by the way. Um, Nature will be changed, lions will eat straw, they won't need to kill other animals. But the serpent still crawls in the dust, the curse produced by sin still stands. But there's no damage, no destruction in the new world. Sounds too good to be true, and yet it is true. It's endorsed by Jesus, it's endorsed by his apostles. For example, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3. We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Or the Apostle John in his um, letter to the Christian churches, In Revelation, near the very end, he says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the new earth had passed away. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Well, what is the application to us? Our little passage this evening ends with two questions. God asks them. And he provides the answer to his question. His first question is, where am I going to live? And his second question is, who is going to live with me? So Isaiah 66. Sorry, in Isaiah chapter 6, then we, uh, we have the Ark of God's Covenant. That is God's footstool in Jerusalem, in the temple, in this world. And in Isaiah 66, we have the whole earth as God's footstool. Isaiah's vision has grown. It is vast. The transcendent God is enormous, is beyond comprehension or imagination. Look at the night sky and think God is bigger than that. And yet he's very close. He is imminent as opposed to transcendent. He is close among us. He is with individual Christians. Now they built him a temple in Jerusalem. Fair enough, he told them to do so. He wants to be with his people. But that would limit him to be in a temple in Jerusalem. He wants to get closer So who does he live with? This is the one I esteem, says God. He who is humble and contrite in spirit 
and trembles at my word. This is in marked contrast to those mentioned in verses 3 and 4 who haven't listened. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. You see, in both the period before the exile and the period after the exile, the people were half-hearted. They would bring duff animals for sacrifice. They fobbed God off so as to sort of really present the minimum they thought they could get away with just to kind of buy him off and get him off their back so they could do their own thing. They thought it was okay that they were treating him with contempt. Why? Because they didn't listen and they chose to do what displeased God. They did not tremble at his word. They didn't believe he would do what he said he'd do. Now the proper response to all this is to tremble at God's word, to realise there are only two alternative eternal destinies. There is life and death, there is heaven and hell, there is joy and misery, there is reward and retribution. And in the light of that, it would seem right to be somewhat nervous of what we read. And we should have a sensitive longing to obey him. We should not have delusions of grandeur or inflated egos. We should be humble, ready to take the lowest place. We should be contrite. It's also used, can be translated, lamed, suggestive of the damage that sin does to us and our helplessness to please God. Or as somebody said to me this morning after the morning sermon, thank you, that keeps me humble. I know why they said that, and I can see why. That's the appropriate response. Plenty of people come close to identifying our greatest longing. You can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man and that is the most bitter type of loneliness. Success has brought me world idolization and millions of pounds, but it prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. That was Freddie Mercury of Queen, who was educated in a mission school in India. Maybe he didn't listen. Maybe he was too proud to find the relationship he was looking for in God by being humble and contrite. That may be true of Prince Charles too. He once said, There remains deep in the soul, if I dare to use that word, a persistent and unconscious anxiety that something is missing, some ingredient that makes life worth living. Well, half-recognising the problem is not enough. For not listening, 
for doing their own thing, the result is harsh treatment, verse 4. God bringing upon them what they most dread, being alone forever, missing out on God forever. But it need not be so. Live under God's word in humble and contrite respect for him. And all these characteristics of the new world that is to come can be ours now, not in the fullest sense, but in the sense that you've tasted it, that you have a sample of it, that it is a deposit, Paul would say, guaranteeing your eternal inheritance. You get a taste of it now and you enjoy the full banquet when it actually arrives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the taste of your presence and character in our lives now, if we've opened up to you and let you in. And we look forward to the great banquet that is the image of the end of time. We look forward with great gratitude to the new world order. We look forward to the end of sorrow and suffering. We look forward to joy and life, togetherness and oneness. We thank you for all that the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, has done to enable us to appreciate it. And if we're in any doubt, may we always remember the Son of Man who on that day comes in judgment, who allocates us to our eternal destinies. May we know the destiny of our final journey. Amen.